Oh, hi. Hey, great to have you here today. My name is Ken, and if you're watching online or if you're in the room with us today, we're just really delighted that you're here. We're starting a two-week series today called The Stories and the Carols, and we're going to be looking at some Christmas stuff together. And um, yeah, so today we're going to be looking at a, a, a Christmas carol that I think is fairly well known, and it's called We Three Kings of Orient Are. Apparently that's the title. We Three Kings of Orient Are. And uh, I don't know if you know that carol very well, but I know when I was uh, growing up as a kid, when we sang this carol, we had another line that we kids would sing in the middle of church when everyone else was singing the right lines, because we liked it and it was kind of fun. And what we would sing was, we three kings of Orient are trying to smoke a rubber cigar. It was loaded, it exploded, that's how we traveled far. And of course, we were... We just sing it and not very loud so we wouldn't get in too much trouble. But the problem was that as I, we sang that over and over and over again, I kind of had this idea that the We Three Kings of Orient Are Christmas Carol was kind of like a, a goofy kind of carol, much like Here Comes Santa Claus or Frosty the Snowman. And then one day I was like traveling, I don't know if I was in a mall or in my car and I heard the words to this song. And when I heard the words to this song, it blew my mind because they were so good, okay? You ever had some time when you've listened to something over and over again and, and you just haven't been paying attention? You ever had that happen? Carol says that happens to me when she's talking to me. I don't know if any of you guys have that experience. Anybody else here like that? Okay, so it's, our, it's our wives. It's not us, just to let you know. Um, so anyway, I'm listen I didn't listen to the song and I'm starting to really listen to the words. And when I listened to the words of We Three Kings, I was blown away, with how, blown away by how deep and rich and theological and powerful and beautiful they were. So let me just show you what I mean by that. We three kings of Orient are. Here's the right words. We three kings of Orient are bearing gifts. We traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star, right? Oh, star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. Then what you have is each of the three kings get to sing a verse, okay? And you'll see, here's the first king. He sings this way. Born a king, about Jesus now he's singing. Born a king on Bethlehem's plain. Gold I bring to crown him again. King forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. Second king. Frankincense to offer have I. Incense owns a deity nigh. Prayer and praising, all men raising, worship him, God, most high. Myrrh is mine, the third king sings. Its bitter perfume breathes a life of gathering gloom. Sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone-cold tomb. Glorious now, behold him arise, king and God and sacrifice. Alleluia, alleluia, heaven to earth replies. Isn't it a great song when you start thinking about the words in it? And I'm wandering through the malls hearing this song being played and thinking to myself, if they only listened to the words of what they're singing or what they're hearing, the story is absolutely amazing, absolutely amazing. I love We Three Kings of Orient are even singing it the correct way, I like it. It's just got some great stuff inside of it, doesn't it? Well, 
We Three Kings of Orient are, let me give you a little history on this one. It was uh, written by John Henry Hopkins, Jr., who was born in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1820, okay? So he went to the University of Vermont, and when he got done uh, being at the University of Vermont, by the way, he kind of looks like Santa, doesn't he? I thought that was kind of kind of cool to write a Christmas carol when you look like that. I mean, that just makes sense. So anyway, he goes to, he graduates from university, becomes a journalist in the community, and then, but really thinks, you know, I want to be a lawyer. And so he wrestles with becoming a lawyer, and, and rather than becoming a lawyer, he went to what's called the General Theological Seminary in New York City, which was a big, big movement back in those days, and he studied and became an Episcopal priest. He came back to the school as the worship kind of leader at that school, and one day they had a cantata, and he decided to write this particular song. It was composed in 1857, and they sang it first at a pageant in the school. It was then published in 1863, and when it was published in 1863, it just took off. Everyone loved the carol, they loved the words in the carol, they loved the music of the carol, and it became very famous, and we're still singing it today. When you realize how many songs get written and don't get still being sung years later, you realize this the power that this particular song had. Pretty crazy, amazing song. And it comes primarily from the book of Matthew and chapter 2. So he's diving into Matthew chapter 2 when he writes this particular carol. Now, when you look into scripture, you've got two main accounts of the birth of Jesus. One is in Matthew, and the other one is in Luke. John, Mark doesn't write about his birth at all. When John does, he has a real simple line. He goes like this, and the word became flesh. That's his Christmas story, okay? And dwelt among us. There it is, the whole thing. John really is focusing that way. But Matthew and Luke get into a little more details, right? And in Matthew chapter 2 in particular, Matthew talks about the wise men or the magi, okay? Let's go to Matthew chapter 2. If you've got a Bible and you want to track with me there, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2 together. Here's what we read. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. Notice the first word. What is it? Can you say it with me? After. So this happens when? After. After Jesus is born in Bethlehem. You go, how long after, Ken? How long is it after Jesus was born that the Magi show up? And the answer is, I don't know. But it was a while. Um, we know a little bit later in the passage that they show up at a house, not at the manger, not at, I know, that's messing up all our Christmas pageants, right? Because we bring these guys in at the end when everything's over and everybody's standing there and we sing, right? But they, they don't show up there. Sorry, your Christmas cards are heretical. I don't know what you want to do with them now, but that's the truth, okay? They weren't there. Um, we, we, it's possible that it was a month later or maybe as long as two years because if you recall, Herod tries to figure out how old the baby is, and he puts out an edict to kill every male child who's how old? Two years of age and under. So maybe he's adding a safety barrier or boundary to what he wants to do. But the wise men, the wise men, the magi, show up when? After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. So it seems that Mary and Joseph and Jesus hung out in Bethlehem for a little bit of time. It says, during the reign of King Herod, during the reign of King Herod. Now, Herod is this pretty wicked kind of guy. In fact, when you think about him, he often reminds me of Jafar. 
I don't know if you remember the movie Aladdin years ago, but there was a guy in there by the name of Jafar. You remember Jafar? I'd love to be able to talk like him. It'd be kind of cool. But anyway, he was the really mean bad guy in that movie. You remember him? And I wonder if Herod's first name isn't Jafar. King Jafar Herod the Great. That could be it, but he's a really wicked kind of a bad guy, right? So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, let's talk a little bit about him. Herod wasn't a Jew, but he was become the king. He was appointed by King of Palestine, of that whole area of Israel, by the Roman authorities. And um, he defeated the Parthians, and then he became this king. He was clever. He was a brilliant orator. He was a master politician. He was a voracious builder. He built and built and built. If you go to Israel today, if you travel around, you're going to see some of the stuff that King Herod built. He married a Jew in order for him to kind of consolidate his leadership or get in favor of the Jews. But you don't really want to invite this guy to your Christmas dinner because I'll tell you, he's just not a good dude. He ends up killing his wife, kills her brother, has his mother-in-law executed, and three of his sons. This is the kind of guy that he is. Really wanted possession of his throne. This is the kind of guy that he was. In fact, there's an interesting story about him. When he was about to die, he knew he was going to die. He got his soldiers together and asked them to round up all of the big deal people in Jerusalem and put them into one room. These are all the Jewish leaders and so on. Put them in a room. And he said, and when I die, I want you to kill them all. And I want you to kill them all because nobody's going to mourn my death. Unless, but because there will be mourning in Jerusalem, that will make me feel better. Now, thankfully, when he died, they did not do that. But that's the kind of heart that this man has. So here's this guy, right? After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, magi, we sometimes call them the wise men or the wise guys, right? Who are they? They look like high-priced perlator couriers dropping off their Amazon packages and off they go again into history. Like they show up, they disappear. Like who are the magi? Who are the wise guys? Well, if you do a little bit of study on this, it's, I find this extremely fascinating as to who these men were. They, um, they're, they're crazy amazing. By the way, you know the song says, we three kings of Orient are? From all of our research, we're not sure there were three. They definitely weren't kings, and they didn't come from the Orient. Other than that, the song is right. <laughs> they were kind of a political party, a caste, an upper caste political party and um, they were from Persia, primarily. They were monotheistic, which means that they believed there was only one God. They weren't polytheistic, which is fascinating. But they were astronomers, astrologers, scientists, mathematicians. They, had, they were scholars and philosophers. They were like legal authorities. The word magic and magician comes from these guys. They had a unique a body of knowledge that they knew that they kept kind of secret from everyone. But because they wanted to hold this post posture of power, they figured if we educate him in the stuff that we know, we won't have that same kind of power in our lives, right? But they became advisors to kings. And um, this very, very important that way, kind of almost into a role of like a king maker. Often when, when countries who were prone toward the Magi who liked them would bring them in to help them advise who would they put on the throne next, and, and they would be involved in sometimes training kings to become better at the task that lay before them. 
they were the most influential and powerful group of, of, of people in the Medo-Persian Empire at that particular time. And um, what's fascinating, if you take your Bible and flip into the Old Testament and find the book called Daniel, that's the Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel, remember him? You realize that he becomes not just a magi, but the chief of the magi. So Daniel is elevated, this Jewish boy who's taken prisoner by the Babylonians back to up, up north, into the, now, now the Persian Empire, he becomes the chief magi, which is really a fascinating thing when you tie that truth into the birth of Jesus and the understanding that the magi would come and look for him. Now, some people believe that Daniel, in, his, in chapter 9 in particular, prophesies the birth, time, birth of Jesus, the timing of the birth of Jesus. It's, is it possible, and I'm just asking the question, okay, is it possible that Daniel had other writings beside his book that we have in Scripture? I think the answer is, yeah, probably. And that in those writings, which would have been kept by the Magi, that there may have been even further explanation about the Messiah who was to come. It's interesting because the Magi, from historically, we look at them, they show up about 600 years before the birth of Jesus. Then they arrive in Bethlehem to, with their gifts, and we don't know what happened to them after that. It's like they disappear off the face of history. Could it be that God just raised them up for six centuries just to arrive at the birth of Jesus? Eh, possible, I suppose. Lots of questions around them. But I don't think the account in Matthew 2 is there by accident. I think that God wants us to understand what's happening. We're going to unpack a little bit more about that. So let's get back to the only verse we've looked at so far. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Jafar Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, you can imagine what's going on, right? Can you now feel the tension in Jerusalem? We have Jafar, who's really, t really this jealous kind of king who wants to make sure he's in control. And now you have these kingmakers, these magi traveling all this way. Who knows how long it took them to get there. And now they're saying, okay, where's the king who's just been born? You can imagine what's going on, right? Because there's an anticipation for a Messiah on the part of the people who are underneath this heavy weight of Rome. But there's also, I think, this tension around that Herod has caused that nobody wants to play around with his throne, with who he's going to be. So you can imagine the kind of tension that's happening in Jerusalem at this moment, okay? In fact, but, but one more thing we need to talk about. You, you notice it says, they ask, where's the one who has been born king of the Jews? Okay, they're very specific about him. We saw his, what? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, in the account, I don't know what to do with this star. I don't know what to do with it. And a lot of people who have dug into scripture around this and thought about this and people who are into as astronomy and so on and so forth have wrestled with what kind of, there goes my note, what kind of thing, what is going on with this star? Like, what is the star? Because when you read about the star, when you look at the star, you're going to say to yourselves, Stars don't do that. Like stars are what? Suns. Okay. They don't. Uh, yeah, we talk about sunrise, but really it's earth rotation, right? So we do know that they rise. Um, but, the, but this one leads them, disappears, shows up again. 
hovers over the house, points out, you know, this is the exact house you can go to. I mean, it just seems kind of do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. You know what I'm saying? Like, what do we do with this star? And this has become a bit of a wrestling match with some people. So some have done a lot of work on this, and they'll talk about planetary alignments, they'll talk about comets, they'll talk about meteors, they'll talk about num a number of things. Um, the words that are used in both the Old Testament and the New Testament for a star, both words in both the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, the New Testament written in Greek, can also not just be translated star, that's a legitimate translation, but they can be translated as sort of a brilliant light, okay, uh, a brilliant light thingy, okay, that's the thingies, my words, but sort of just like this brilliant light. My personal preference as to what is going on here is, I don't know, okay, but, but if I had to pick something, I would say to you, I think it's a unique kind of bright light that God is providing here. I don't think it's one of those suns in the sky, but, but I could be totally right. I mean, I could be totally wrong on that one. Um, but anyway, that's what's happening. So if you had questions around, why does a star do what it does? Understand that the language of the New Testament and Old Testament both give us way more opportunity to see this as not just a ball of fire that's somehow moving through the sky and parking itself over a house. It's obviously miraculous. Whatever it is that God is doing, that's what's happening at this time. Okay? Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. Worship him. Man, that's such a strong statement, isn't it? Because to worship somebody is not just simply to say, oh, uh, hi, see ya. It's, it's to do bigger things than that. It's to declare that this king who's born is very special and very unique. Not just am I going to be subject to him, in other words, I'm going to obey him because he's a king, but I'm going to bow down, I'm going to worship him, I'm going to adore him. And remember that I already shared with you that the Magi are monotheistic. They only believe in one God. So this act on their part, this we have come to worship him. You can imagine again what Herod is thinking and what the nation are thinking at this particular point. And remember, when the Magi show up, it's not like two guys in a little wee car. This is like probably a big entourage with all their help and so on. Again, it could have been months that they were traveling to get here to this spot. So the whole town is a little bit struggling here. They want to admire Jesus and elevate him and order their lives around him. It's a pretty amazing response that these magi have to this baby who's been born. And again, I wonder about the influence of Daniel on their writings the chief magi wrote this. This is what we need to be looking for. Here we go, back into the passage. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So you can see the turmoil that's happening, not only in the palace, but among the people. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. So he hears the story, here's the request, whether the magi came to Herod, we don't know. But he decides he's going to bring the bigwigs into the room and say, okay, what, what's going on? What, tell me about this magi, or excuse me, this king who's supposed to be born. He asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And they respond this way. This is the Jewish leaders. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. Now, what they're going to do is they're going to quote from a prophet in the Old Testament by the name of Micah, chapter 5 and verse 2. Here's what it says. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you 
will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the Jewish leaders say the king is to be born in Bethlehem. This raises an interesting point that why does the star disappear? Why is it stop shining when they're heading towards getting close? I believe it's because God wants the Magi to be in Jerusalem. He wants the city to be disturbed. He wants them to look back into the prophets and recognize that this one has, in fact, been born. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star appeared. So he's believing that the star appears at the time of Jesus' birth. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go, make a careful search for the child. And Hey, as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. <laughs> After they heard the king, they went on their way. And, and the star they had seen when it rose, went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. can't go backwards, can I? Okay, they were overjoyed. Um, let me try and go backwards. Oh, they, I did go backwards. Okay. Um, on coming to the house, notice, you thought I was wrong, didn't you? Now you know I'm right. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and pretended, pretend, presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So there it is. We've seen it before. We've watched the pageants on stage. We've seen the kids shuffle in, shuffle out. We've watched movies about them. Here they are. We see it again. It's interesting that they give these three gifts. So the first one, of course, is gold, right? Which is very, very precious and very, very valuable. Gold would be used for the crown of a king. Gold would often be covering the throne of a king. And many believe that when the symbol, there's some symbolism here about the royalty of Jesus, that Jesus is a king. And the gold is kind of a, a testimony to that recognition of who he is. The second thing that they give is called frankincense, and it's a perfume. It's a very, very expensive perfume, and it has an amazing aroma. It was often used in regal processions, so when they would have you know, royal processions, they would use this perfume to waft through the air. Weddings would use it as well. And some tell us that it was stored, some of the frankincense was actually stored in the, a special room in the temple compound. It was that significant. And we believe that it's symbolic of Jesus' deity, of the deity of Jesus, that this royal man, this, this, this who he is. Then finally there's myrrh, which is a perfume, and also expensive, but not as expensive as frankincense. And it was often mixed with wine as a kind of painkiller. They would anoint bodies for burial with myrrh. And they, of course, anointed Jesus' body after his death. And we believe that this kind of symbolizes his sacrifice. King, God, sacrifice. I also believe that the gold and frankincense and myrrh, once the message gets out that Herod wants to kill the young boy, and Joseph and Mary and Jesus become refugees in Egypt. And when they're refugees in Egypt, the gold and the frankincense and myrrh would have been used to help them survive that experience because Joseph was a carpenter. He wasn't a, multi, a very wealthy man, and God was using not only the symbolism of this, but using the, the wonder of its availability to help them. 
just, just, I think, just amazing how the, all the pieces start to come together when you look at what's going on here at this particular moment. I don't know if you think much about Jesus being a refugee, but when you start to think that way and you look around the world, you realize, look at the identification that Jesus has with many, many of our friends, family, brothers and sisters, others we don't know, people who are thrust out of their countries for various reasons. Jesus knows that, even as a little guy, right? And, he's, and Mary and Joseph as well. So when we look at the account, one of the ways we can look at it is to look at the reactions that people have in the account to the birth of Jesus. And I, I see three of them. There is the reaction of the Magi to the announcement. There's the reaction of Herod to the announcement. And there's a reaction of the Jewish leaders to the announcement. And each of the reactions is different. So the Magi sought the king. They went after this. They had, we'll talk a little bit more about it. So while the, while the Magi sought the king, Herod fought the king, and the Jews forgot the king. Herod sought him. Excuse me. <laughs> there we go. That's some heresy. The Magi sought him. Herod fought him, and the Jews forgot him. Interesting. When, when I look at the Magi and the fact that the Magi sought the king, I'm stunned by it. When I started, to, when I started doing a lot of thinking around this and read some other people, it's, it's pretty crazy what they had to go through to, to make this happen. Here are these very, this high-class group of people who have very, very little knowledge of what's going on. Do they have some of the Old Testament writings? I suspect they have the writings of Daniel, at least, and maybe some others. But that's not a lot to go by. And all of a sudden, there's this, sun, this star that shows up, or, or light, or whatever it was. And um, they have this you know, old, old prophecy. And they're going to travel a long way. And in spite of that difficulty, off they go. It would have been very costly for them. They would have had to have said, I'm, you know, sorry, we're heading off way down to that little outpost on the far-flung corners of the Roman Empire because apparently a king's been born down in that direction. At least that's where we're heading. You can imagine, you know, their, their family going, you're nuts, and off they go, right? It would have cost them a lot of money. It would have moved them out of their primary roles in Medo-Persia at the time, and yet off they go, off they go. Then there's the trouble. Then there's the star that gets lost, and they got to go into Jerusalem, and then they travel a little bit more. I mean, you can just think about all of that happening. But what is really key for me is to watch this group of men who decide that they're going to pursue what they're after, even though it isn't necessary that they've got a whole lot of information. I believe that every one of us has enough information, enough nudging, enough promptings in our lives by God whether overt or subtle, to make us aware of his reality. And our response then needs to be, what do we do with these nudgings? If you're lost in a dark forest and um, it's uh, pitch black, it, if you're looking for a way out and all you see is a little candle on, on the horizon, you need to go toward that candle. Or if it's a big spotlight on a tower, you need to head toward it. In either case, there's enough light for you to know which direction to go. And for the Magi, there was enough light for them to say, we're going on our way down to wherever this star leads us to anoint what we believe to be is the king. The Magi sought the king, even though they had limited knowledge. And I, I, I believe that one of the things that's just wonderful is to watch people who recognize who the king is, who understand at least a little bit about him, begin to pursue him that way. I remember getting a phone call from a friend who said to me, I got a buddy at work, and he 
he's really asking a lot of questions about Jesus. He's not a follower of his. Would you be willing to talk to him? And I, I said, well, let me pray about it for a while. No, I, I, you guys are going to get my humor one day. So I, maybe not. But so what happened is I said, sure, let's talk. So Bob came to, to visit with me. He was a um, um, significant player in, in his role at work and so on and so forth. He had been in his late 40s at that particular time. And he was just really struggling with his life and what, what he wanted to be able to sort of put pieces together. And he wasn't sure about Christianity. And so I said to him, well, so we talked for a little while, and I said, well, do you want to just kind of work through a book in the Bible? And he said, sure, what book is that? I said, well, let's go through the book of John. So I, we, he found a Bible, and we got the Gospel of John, and we started working through it. And Bob was asking questions and searching. We'd go through a little section, and we'd meet again, go through another section, we'd meet again, go through another section. And I wanted to get him to chapter 3, because in chapter 3, you've got this religious guy named Nicodemus coming to Jesus and discovering that Jesus says, you need to have a radical change inside of you by putting your faith and hope in me because then that's called being born again spiritually. And I wanted to get him there. And so the day came when we were going to John chapter 3. We got to John chapter 3, three and I said, Bob, we're going to look at John chapter 3. And he says, hold it, before we do that, I want to become a Christian. I said, we got to go through John 3. Like, we have to, we have to do that. And he says, no, 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 I want it right now. Can I do that? What do I, I, I said, well, tell me what you believe. And Bob said, well, I've been searching and searching, and I really believe that, like, I just believe Jesus is God, and I believe he came and he died on the cross for our, for our sins, and I believe that I need, to, I need to turn, put my hope and faith and trust in him as my personal sin forgiver and life leader. I said, man, you're a believer then, if that's what you believe. I said, you want to tell God about it? And he goes, yeah, let me do that. So I said, okay, here's, what are you going to tell God? And so we talked through what he would say to God, and he prayed, and there was that amazing transformation in his life as I watched him grow. Bob sought the king. I love it when people seek the king, and I, and I believe that God longs for people to do that very thing. Being a magi is being a wise person, right? Then there's Herod. Herod fought the king. When I think about what Herod had coming to him, I, it, I'm, I'm a little surprised at how he responds. There's this big, huge light, if you were, in the dark forest that shows up in the terms of the magi, who disturb not only him, but the entire city. He hears scripture from Micah, chapter 5 and verse 2. Here's the religious leader talking about this, and yet he turns away. There's no indication, okay, that he responded to him. And the interesting thing is that some, so, some historians tell us that at this particular time on the earth, there was this real hunger for something more, something more than what they could find. The Greek gods didn't give the answer, neither did the Roman gods, and the world was kind of struggling with where, 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 can we, where, 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 where can we find an answer to life? In fact, you remember the Philippian jailer? He uh, cries out to Paul when he goes, what must I do to be saved? That was a pretty common expression in those days. Saved from the mess we're in, saved from this cycle of going nowhere, saved, where's the answer to life? In Galatians 4.4, Paul writes when the, um, he, he writes these words, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. In other words, this was the exact best time in history for Jesus to come. There was a universal language called Greek. There was roads that the Romans had built. There was no borders. People could travel because there was one government. Missionaries could then go way out, and, and they did in great ways. There was this universal hunger, as I already meant. And here's Herod with all of that around him, and yet he, he, he doesn't want Jesus on the throne of his life. He wants his own throne. And at the time that this is happening, we believe he would have been in his 70s. 
So it wasn't like he was a young guy. He was already fairly old at this particular moment. I've, uh, over the years, had some conversations with atheists. And the, one of the primary ways that's happened is by email. So they will talk to me anonymously. I can think of some of them I've met and chatted with, but others of them, they just come and told me who they were, and we just get these emails back and forth, which is kind of cool. It's always been respectful, always been great, and I, it's sometimes lasting for a year and a half to two years. We dialogue back and forth. But I remember one fellow in particular, we got into this conversation back and forth, and um, I was saying, I really want to focus on Jesus now. I really want to spend some time talking about him because he's kind of at the point of it all. And he writes me back and says, I don't think Jesus ever existed. And I kind of did a, what? Like, you don't really believe he existed? Like, why have we been talking for like a year and a half? And, 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 and as I began to interact with him on that thing, I, um, I said to him, like, because when you look, yes, we've got scriptural evidence for Jesus, but we also have extra biblical evidence for Jesus, historical evidence that there's a Jesus. So to deny that he really existed, and some people do do that, I find a real struggle with that. It's like they are fighting back against the truth. And he didn't want to talk about Jesus the way that I needed to talk about Jesus. And finally, I said to him, look, man, I just don't know that this is going to work. I don't think there's anywhere that I can take you or any conversation we can have if you don't believe that Jesus really existed. If you're going to push back like that against what I think is very obvious that he did, I can't help you. And I see Herod almost doing that very same thing, pushing back, pushing back, pushing back. The wise guys, the Magi, sought the king. Herod fought the king. The Jews, what did they do? They forgot the king. I'm sitting there going, you've got to be kidding me. You uh, guys who looked for the Messiah to rescue you from Rome, you guys who know the scriptures, you guys who quoted Micah 5 2 to, the, to him, and yet every indication is they never left Jerusalem and walked the however few kilometers it is to Bethlehem. They simply forgot the king. There's no indication they made any move to follow or find or learn or look, and they had more light than anybody else in the whole account. And yet they chose not to do this. I've seen many people, many, many of my friends who were raised in church choose not to, not to follow Jesus, to maybe go through the motions to have grown up that way. Maybe you've got children or siblings or parents or friends in the same way. You watched them, they were here, they heard it all, but they chose not to follow. And that weighs on our hearts, doesn't it, when that happens? But it does happen. And that's what I see with the religious leaders, that very same thing. We pray that God would turn them around and bring them to faith in him. The Magi sought the king. Herod fought the king. And the Jews forgot the king. Those are three reactions. Three reactions to this one who is God, king, and sacrifice for us. And those reactions are reactions that every, I think everyone has when they are nudged by God. How do I respond to this, this one, this one named Jesus? And I don't know where you are today. Maybe you are someone who, like the Magi, are seeking and you're looking and you're trying to put the pieces together. And if so, let me just tell you how glad we are that you're a part of Grace, whether you're watching online or in the room. We want to help you take that step forward. And maybe you're someone who's here, you're fighting it, and you're just coming for whatever reason. I would urge you to stop and maybe slow down and take a look at him. And maybe if you're on that, you're that person who's going through the motions here, man, would I ever, we would want to urge you to slow down and really take a look at who Jesus is and understand how much he loves you and wants you to be with him, to know him, to follow him.
me pray together with you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this story. I thank you for these magi who pushed all this way in order for them to be finding this king. And then we're able to offer their gold and frankincense and myrrh and bow down and worship him. And I thank you for many of us online or in this room who've done the same. And we've discovered in that relationship with you a joy and a peace and a forgiveness and a wonder that we're, uh, uh, that's beyond anything we can express. I thank you, Father, for that. I pray for some who might be here who are fighting or watching who are fighting, that, Lord, I'd ask whatever barriers they have, that they'd be just aware of them, that they'd slow down and take a good look at the, at, the, at the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe this time of year is a time when you can speak to them in broader and brighter ways. Help us to be people who will do that. And I pray, too, Heavenly Father, for some who are doing, maybe drifted spiritually, they may even be in the room or online and doing the drift. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that they would slow down and really ask key questions. We would love to talk with them if we can. And maybe today, for some, this is an opportunity to step over that line of faith, put their hope and trust in you, and become a follower of Jesus. I pray that you just bless our time today. Bless this Christmas season, a season in which there is an opportunity to really focus on the birth of our Savior. And I pray that, Lord, we would, like the, like the wise men, Come and worship at his feet, for he alone is worthy. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.